Well, good morning, church. I want to welcome all of you who are in person, as well as those of you who are uh, joining us online. I understand there's just a few minutes delay uh, between uh, online and, and in person, but uh, we've got this really cool thing where you can actually go on your phone and watch it too, so don't do that if you're in person. But uh, so I just typed in here, good morning, church. I'm glad you're with us this morning. Send. And there's also, if you're joining us online, there's this really cool thing right at the bottom. There's these little hearts. And at the points when I start preaching, if you want to hit that heart over and over and over again, see here, I'll help you. I'll show you. See, look at that. I mean, hearts everywhere. So, uh, and, and the online crew will get that in about three minutes, I think. So, uh, you got to see it first right here. Um, let's welcome our online crowd, would you, with a round of applause. Uh, as Pastor Joe said, we do have next steps following the second service today at noon. We are providing lunch. If you, uh, I probably should turn this off now because it's kind of distracting. But uh, if you uh, say, well, man, I didn't sign up, don't worry about it. We'd love to have you just come back at about noon. Uh, we'll bless the food and multiply it like Jesus did with the loaves and fishes, and it'll be perfectly fine. But, uh, you know, I, I'm amazed. Uh, uh, one of our members pulled me aside yesterday. Pastor Joe and I have been here every day. We fixed the housing crisis. We're just going to live here. So, um, uh, but it's been wonderful. The church has been filled with such energy over the past uh, several weeks and several months. And uh, as we head into Easter, we're looking at uh, many of the opportunities this congregation will have to touch people. I think so far 13 people have joined uh, South Sub Church, and we're grateful to welcome them into the life. We have about eight or nine more that uh, are seven or eight, something like that, that are coming the next steps. You know, God is really at work here, and we're grateful for the people that he's bringing uh, to this place, and we receive that with great humility because we understand that uh, that we're all simply trying to follow Christ as faithfully as we can, recognizing that it is He that has done everything. We bring nothing to the table, and yet He gives us all of Himself. And so uh, I hope and pray that you'll continue to pray as we look toward the future that God is calling us into. Uh, we're in the middle of a series, um, uh, The End of Me, The End of Me, and uh, we're looking at John chapter 5 this morning. So if you have your Bibles or your tablets or your phones, uh, we encourage you to turn to John chapter 5. This is, um, this is a, a, whole, a whole lot of stuff. We're only going to be looking at verses 1 through 6, but I encourage you, as you're able, to, to read the whole chapter of John, specifically uh, 5 verses 1 through 18. Um, the, uh, but the text that we're going to spend some time looking at today is just verses 1 through 6. So I, I did a sermon through verse 18, and it was like 37 pages long, and uh, I knew that Pastor Joe would get mad at me. So um, uh, so we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. If you have your Bibles open and ready to go as we attune to God's Word, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 30 
eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and understanding to it. Well, as I said, this text is really, it's a really complicated text. There's a lot of stuff that's going on here in John chapter 5. And if you're reading all of John, and I always encourage people to do that, uh, to read the entirety of the book uh, as uh, you go into this next week, trying to make sense of the message that uh, we're seeking to receive from God today. Um, you'll, you'll, it's a really, it's not necessarily the pivotal chapter uh, in John, but it is an example of a theme that you're going to see over and over and over in John. So let's kind of break this down a little bit. We want to be students of God's Word, so let's kind of break this down a little bit. Jesus is in Jerusalem for a Jewish festival, and he happened to pass by the pool of Bethesda. Now, I could take a lot of time and talk to you about this pool of Bethesda, uh, what it is, why it was important, how it became important in the eyes of the Jewish people, but uh, it is in the study guide, so if you click on the QR code and go to the study notes on your phone, or if you stop by the Welcome Center and pick up a paper copy, uh, there's, some, there's some background about that pool, but it, it, it's, a, it's a rather fascinating uh, a study uh, about what the pool of Bethesda is and, and how this strange place became so important to the Jewish people. But succinctly, for our purposes today, let me just give you this very quick summary. It was believed in that time that on occasion an angel would come down and with their wings stir up the water. And when that would, now, now whether or not that was real, there's no biblical proof that that was real, but that was the understanding of the Jewish people at that time. And the Bible, you know, uh, uh, states that, that, that people believed this. Well, when the angel stirred up the water of this pool, whoever the first person in the water was, they would be healed. Okay, so let me just take just a second. Does that sound like how God works? Nah, good. I'm glad you kind of are, are a little suspicious of it because the, the John's a little suspicious of it. And as we'll see, Jesus is a little suspicious of that too. That's not how it works. God doesn't say, here's the flag, first one here, I will heal. Everybody else, back to the end of the line again. That's not how God works, all right? But nevertheless, that's what they believed. And you know what, as I think about that, if I were a Pharisee at the time or a religious leader, Sadducee, priest, scribe, th this would be something I'd be preaching against. It sounds like a raw deal to me. I remember years ago, <clears throat> uh, 2005, I had to have rather serious back surgery. If you'll notice that sometimes I kind of move like that, it's not because I'm weird, it's because my back hurts. Anyway, I had back surgery, and I remember, you know, as all young people, people are, not just young men, but young people are. I asked the surgeon, I said, so when can I go home? Because that's, you know, I don't know why, but we always want to just get home, right? And he said, as soon as you're able to get out of the bed by yourself, you can go home. And I thought to myself, well, that's easy. I'll be out of this bed first thing as soon as this surgery is over. It took me three hours to set up after the surgery. The pool, in the same way, was a shrine for the Jewish people a shrine for those who were sick, those who were invalid, that could not walk. It was a place that those who had nowhere else to turn 
was their last line of hope. It was a popular gathering place, and it could oftentimes be quite crowded. And one of the interesting things, if you can kind of, sometimes when we read the Bible, we just read the words and we don't really stop to think about, gee whiz, what would that look like in real life? And so if you thought about what it would look like in real life, I can only imagine all of these blind and invalid and paralyzed people gathered around that pool within the colonnades, within the pillars, and as soon as the water is stirred, however the water is stirred, they're shoving one another out of the way. I mean, can you imagine uh, somebody who just has one bag leg grabbing somebody who is paralyzed from the waist down and pulling them back so that they can get to the pool first? I mean, it's an astonishing vision in my mind about what people were doing around this pool and that Jesus goes there. And you know what? It seems uh, really frustrating to me to, to think about this is, is that if you're gathered around the pool and the first person into the pool is the one that get, gets healed, it's probably the person that's not as bad because they actually have the ability to get to the pool. They have some level of strength, or they have folks who will pick them up and carry them. It's the poor folks that are back in the back who can't move, who can't walk. Every movement of their body racks them with pain. They have no one to help them. And the bottom line is, is that there's a very good chance that the vast majority of people who came to this pool of Bethesda were going to go away disappointed. There was no hope. Now, our text describes this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Now, if you watched The Chosen or if you were part of our sermon series, we didn't, we didn't focus on that particular scene during that series, but there's actually a scene in that first season where Jesus, where this story is exemplified in that series. This man, 38 years of suffering, countless bouts of despair, overwhelming hopelessness. Let me ask you a question, and I don't know if I know the answer. Is hopelessness and helplessness the same thing? I don't know. Maybe on some level. Most of us, if we think about it and Many of us in this room have had moments in our life where we felt hopeless and where we felt helpless, but how many of us in this room have had trouble fully surrendering? How many of us in this room, even in the worst times of our life, may have said, I can get through this if... I would suggest that you're not quite at hopelessness yet. How many of us in this room haven't found ourselves in a situation with overwhelming odds, with a challenge before us, and we have said to ourselves, I can do this if. Well, Jesus comes to this pool of Bethesda, and he sees this invalid who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he takes pity on him. And he goes up to him, and he asks him what is, in my mind, 
one of the most oddest questions that anybody could ask considering the circumstances. He's invalid, has been for 38 years, is at the pool of Bethesda where folks get healed if they can get in the water first. And Jesus says in verse 6, do you want to be healed? I think the question has more than one possible meaning. The first and most logical meaning that most of us would have thought of immediately, and probably this invalid man thought of immediately, is his physical health. Did he want to walk again? But there's another possible meaning, and it refers to the man's spiritual condition. Now, the John, who writes the gospel, wants us to consider both possibilities. And this is really characteristic of John's gospel as he records uh, the meaning and life of Jesus. Uh, for example, think about some of the other stories that are in the gospel of John. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he asks her uh, whether or not she has water which if she were to drink, that he has the water, if she were to drink, she'd never thirst again. Was it literal water that he was offering her? Or was it a spiritual water, a living water, a water that would enliven her spirit, her life? Which was Jesus referring to? The same sort of situation happens again in John chapter 3 when, John, um, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And, and he says to Nicodemus, you remember, you have to be what? Born again? Well, Nicodemus says, what do you mean born again? How can I go back inside my mother and be born again? That's ridiculous. Is Jesus talking about a physical birth, or is he talking about a spiritual birth? And John chapter 9, after this uh, event with the man at Bethesda, he talks to a blind man, and he asks the blind man, do you want to see? Was Jesus talking about just being physically blind? Or was he talking about being spiritually blind? And John, as he records the life of Jesus, tends to focus on both the temporal meanings of what Jesus says as well as the spiritual meanings of what Jesus says. The temporal meanings of Jesus' teachings and the spiritual meanings of Jesus' attention. The question, do you want to be healed? Jesus is directing that question, I think, to all of us here today as well. Just as much as he did to that man who lived 2,000 years ago. Do you want to be healed? To answer that question, you know what the diagnosis of the great physician is. Now, most of you probably got out of bed this morning and some of you were slow and going, you know, you swung your feet over and there was some creaking and cracking and you're like, man, I didn't know I had that muscle. Where'd that muscle come from? But you got out of bed, you made your coffee or your tea or whatever you drank and you had your breakfast perhaps and you got dressed and you found your way to church or you turned your computer on. I mean, you may not be fully sick. There might be some people joining us who are struggling with physical ailments who have COVID perhaps. But if Jesus were to walk into this place right now and say to you, 
do you want to be healed, what would you think? What would you say? I, I didn't know I was sick. You see, just the question points to something that we sometimes can't even see. And that's the most dangerous. The diseases that are the most dangerous are the diseases that we don't know we have. The ones we can't feel, the ones we can't see. You know, sometimes that question that Jesus asks is harder to answer because we're not really sure what the question actually is pointing to, and we're not really sure what our problem might actually be. Do you want to be healed, Ike? I don't know. Am I sick? Would I be asking you if you wanted to be healed? If you weren't sick, Ike. So notice the man's odd answer. You think about that for a second. Some of you aren't going to be able to listen to the rest of the message, and that's fine. If that's where the Lord needs to have you stop and think about, you have the blessings of this church to do that. But for the rest of us, let's go on and look at the man's odd answer. You would think that the man would just simply say, uh, yes, look where I am. Yes, I want to be healed. But notice that in the man's answer, and this goes on uh, um, into verse 7, which wasn't read today. Look at verse 7 with me. The sick man answered Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. What's the man doing? Did he answer the question? Or did he complain about something else? He's complaining about the system, isn't he? Yeah, I sure would like to be healed. He doesn't say that, but it's assumed. But what he does is he immediately begins to point at the things that he thinks are getting in the way of his being healed. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The man says, Every time the water's stirred, I can't get to it quick enough, and there's people that kick me and step over me. I can't get to the water. Now let me pause here and just ask a couple questions. Do you want to be happy, joyful in life? Jesus, you might hear Jesus say that to you. Jesus, if I could get this job, I'd be happy. Jesus says, you want to be joyful in life? You want to have security in life? You might say, if I could get out of debt, I'd be happy. You might be a young person saying, hearing Jesus saying, Jesus, Jesus says to you, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to find meaning in life? Well, if my girlfriend, if my boyfriend hadn't broken up with me, if my fiance hadn't ended our engagement, if my husband or my wife hadn't divorced me, I'd be happy. Are you beginning to see this? They're all the wrong questions. They're all the wrong responses. And it's so second nature to us. It's so second nature to when God asks us if we want to be healed, if we want to be whole, to go to an answer that Jesus is thinking, that, 
this is not multiple choice. This isn't even a short answer question, and it's definitely not an essay question. Yes or no. Here this man is standing before him. He's the great physician, and all that he can see is how he can get around the great physician and into the pool. And don't we do that with our own struggles in life? Jesus comes and says to us, do you want meaning? Do you want truth? Do you want salvation? Do you want security? Do you want to know that you're loved? Do you want to know that you're valued? And we say, if you would just move so I can get to that, you wouldn't have to ask me that question. We might even say to Jesus, look, I just, need a, I just need a push, Jesus. I don't need you to take care of it. Just give me a hand. Just give me a nudge. I can do this if. This man's mind was locked onto just one kind of miracle. His options and his opinion were limited. If Jesus would just stop asking crazy questions and spend some time waiting on him, and would sit with him, and when he sees that pool stirred, if Jesus would just pick him up and pitch him over the heads of the crowd, maybe he'd get healed. But look what Jesus does. He ignores the man's comment. Thank God. Thank God Jesus ignores our comments and our commentaries and gives us what we need and not what we think we want. And Jesus says firmly to him, verse 8, get up and take up your bed and walk. Verse 9, and at once the man was healed. At once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. The man was healed immediately, even before he acted. Did you notice that? He wasn't healed even on his faith, which we see a lot in the New Testament. We see that a lot with Jesus, that when the individual claims the reality and the promise of what Jesus says, the healing comes. Here, the healing comes even before that. That ought to make some of you feel uncomfortable. Why? Because it's all grace. And there is nothing more uncomfortable than grace. We all want to have a part in our redemption. We all want to have a part in our justification. We all want to have a part in our healing. And here is a story of pure grace. Listen, this man did nothing to attract Jesus' attention. Jesus just picked him. The man didn't even answer his question. And he certainly, even if we infer an answer, didn't answer it the way Jesus was expecting it to be heard. He was basically saying, I don't need anything from you, Jesus. I need to get to that pool. And nevertheless, church, nevertheless, Jesus heals him. He gives him a command. 
And the healing wasn't even necessary. I mean, sorry, the, 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 the healing was, was necessary before he could even fulfill the command. This man had nothing to brag on. Nothing. How many of us haven't given a testimony? The Lord has led me to do this, and I did it, and blessings came showering down upon me. The inference there is, is that the reasons the blessings came is because we stepped into the promise of what Jesus called us to do. That doesn't happen here. The blessings come even before the man come, does anything. This man was presented with the glaring reality of his helplessness, and you and I are given the opportunity to gaze deeply into the most uncomfortable situation of all, his utter and complete helplessness, and thereby we see our utter and complete helplessness. He didn't bring anything to the healing, and neither do we. It's important to note that Jesus healed this man without being asked to do so, Jesus took the first step. Jesus took the initiative. Jesus started the conversation. And Jesus finished it fully and completely without anything from that man. We see here that Jesus' compassion and grace and mercy are not reserved for those whom we would consider deserving. And that's uncomfortable. We set parameters for God, don't we? We say to God, now God, when you do good and great things, you need to do it to people who are good people. And y'all can define good however you want to define. And then we say, and Lord, we want to make sure that you don't do good things to bad people. Don't we? We might even in our prayer life say, Lord, what did I deserve, do to deserve this in reference to something bad that's happened to us? Jesus heals simply because that is the work his Father has called him to do. There was a time in my life and I said, Lord, I don't know why you make people, why do you let everybody else be millionaires? If you would let me be a millionaire, I'd give 10% of it away. And then I went up to 25% of it away. And then I went up to 50% of it away. Jesus does the work of his Father. You see, Jesus didn't need the waters of the pool to bring healing. He didn't even need the faith of the disabled man. If you're not uncomfortable now, I don't know what else to do to you. All that was required for this man to be healed was that Jesus' powerful, life-giving, life-affirming word was spoken. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. He who is the word, he who created the universe with his word, is the one who heals with the word as well. The powerful word of God. Word's real important in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. Go home and read it this afternoon. The powerful word of God is at work right before our eyes this morning. And this is the same word that was uttered at creation. Let there be light. John says that is the word through which all was created. Jesus Christ. And amazingly, 
the man who was healed, he didn't even show any sign of faith after he was healed. Yeah, I guess it does get worse, doesn't it, church? Because you should at least be grateful that you got healed. There's no indication in the text that the man was ever grateful for that. There was no gratitude for what Jesus had done. When he was asked who had healed him, he didn't even know, verses 12 and 13. The man wasn't even aware of Jesus' identity. You'd think if somebody just healed you from being paralyzed, you'd say, can I get that man's name? As a matter of fact, what we see in the following verses is that the man was more concerned about his standing with the Jewish leaders than he was with Jesus. Because once he knew who Jesus was, he didn't waste any time going and reporting Jesus to the authorities. He has to know. Jesus and the Pharisees have been arguing. That was Jesus that he, oh, I've heard about Jesus. They don't like him very much, do they? And he says, I'm going to go tell them who did it to me. Now, you might be able to say, well, he was just so excited he wanted to be an evangelist because everybody loves to speak truth to power and risk being persecuted, right? The good Jesus did for him was met not with faith or gratitude on his part. In the middle of John chapter 5, an interesting transition begins to uh, occur. A story about healing, are you ready, becomes a story about persecution. And the persecution gives us a chance to see who Jesus really is. The man was confronted by the religious authorities after his healing. They wanted to know who had carried him, who had ordered him to carry his mat on the Sabbath, and he deflected the blame to Jesus. In John chapter 5, verse 9, when the words, now that day was the Sabbath, are written by John, everything changes. John wants to remind us that Jesus' miracles sparked faith in some people and opposition in others. And that's an important thing to remember. That even your faith in Christ might spark opposition in others. Now I'm remembering why this sermon went 37 pages. The most difficult part of living the Christian life in the face of opposition is whether or not we will speak or give credit to what God has done in our life when the audience in which we find ourselves may not receive it well. We're likely to keep quiet. Now, probably no one in any church would say, well, I did it myself. But we might not say, we might just choose to say nothing at all. We might not say, because God, through Christ, has done it for me. And yes, 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 the leaders concerned that their Sabbath laws had been broken left them more convinced than ever that they really should get rid of this Jesus. But John tells us in verse 18, from that point on, they, quote, were seeking all the more to kill him. You see, the story doesn't end there for Jesus. Jesus suffered for this display of compassion. I'm not really sure the man ever, ever understood his utter helplessness. And yet Jesus healed him anyway. Matter of fact, Jesus warns him in verse 14. See, Jesus says to him, you are well. And then what does he say? Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. It's hard to accept our helplessness. That what we have received is a gift. That every day is a gift 
But now I, I don't want to end this message with a rant at you, you know, something like, you need to be more appreciative and faithful. No, 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 no. What I want to suggest to you is, is that this man is us. And this story is not about the man. It's not about us. This story is about Jesus. No response from you, as if we could give a response. But John wants this word, and this word wants this preacher, and this preacher wants to say to you, even when we are rebellious, Jesus saves. Even when we're helpless, Jesus saves. Even when we're terminally ill, Jesus heals. What I want you to leave this place with more than any other thing today isn't that you need to be better. It's that Jesus is good beyond even our human comprehension. That he heals all of us because that's what Jesus does. I want you to leave here not knowing yourself better, but knowing Jesus who loves you and asks you this day, do you want to be healed? As the elders make their way to the table.